Welcome again to everyone here uh, in person and online at home. We're glad that you're with us. My name is Karen Cubitt, and if you're with us for the first time today, we want to give you an especially warm welcome. And we just um, want to know that you're here. So we'd ask you to um, consider going to our website, newlifecollingwood.com, and uh, clicking on the New Here button. Just let us know that you're with us. But we are soon heading into the Advent and Christmas season, and um, we want to make sure that you're aware of um, all the things that are happening. And the best way to do that is with our weekend newsletter. If you aren't already receiving that, we'd invite you to visit our website again, newlifecollingwood.com, and um, scroll to the bottom, and there's a place for you to fill in your email address, and you will then get those regular um, newsletters. One special date that we'd like to draw your attention to today is Saturday, December 12th at 6 p.m. We are having a Christmas Carols by the Fire event, and we would like to invite you to join us. Uh, we'll be doing something that we can't do indoors right now, and that is sing outdoors. So we'll be lighting up a bonfire, and we'll be singing some Christmas carols around that, and we would just love for you to join us. If that is something that you're interested in doing, we would ask you to register. And you can do that by visiting the website, um, go to events, and then look for the register button to let us know that you'll be joining us. And on that note, we'd like to ask for your help. So make sure before you attend an event or a service that well in advance, you visit the website and click on the register button and let us know that you'll be joining. We want to take a moment again to thank you for your continued generosity in your giving. Um, and if you are joining us today in person, uh, there is a donation box at the back of the auditorium. And if you'd like to give online, you can do that um, by text or through the Church Center app, which you can find at newlifecollingwood.com slash give. Click on that, it'll give you all the details and it's actually pretty simple to do. And now we'd like to hand it over to Paul for his next message in the series from the margins. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thank you. There's so many ways you can answer that question. <clears throat> um, I asked that generally uh, just several conversations this week and um, online, having conversations online with people, having conversations face-to-face, -face, uh, on the phone. And as much as we're tired of it, I think it's just worth recognizing that we're tired of this. And, and I think you're feeling it. I'm feeling it. And as we said last week in the letters from Peter, uh, we don't want to enter into comparative suffering where we squish down how we're feeling because somebody else has it worse than we do. We want to acknowledge how we're feeling and recognize that God acknowledges how we're feeling and allow ourselves the grace to, to feel what we're feeling. So know that uh, you're being prayed for and, uh, and you are not alone and there are people who want to journey with you and travel with you. And uh, <clears throat> we're tired of talking about it, we're tired of hearing about it and it, that's not gonna make it go away. So this morning, uh, we just want to acknowledge that, that it's okay to feel how you're feeling, whether it's frustration or fear or exhaustion, um, and that you don't have to go through that alone. All right. 
Here we are in the series from the margins. From the margins is looking at the letters that are in the New Testament, and it's letters that are written by people who are trying to help uh, Christians in the first century understand what it means to live out their faith in following Jesus. And there's a pattern that you might have picked up on as we've gone through the letters of Paul, and we looked at the letters of Peter, and, and today we're looking at the letter of James. And uh, it's this. In these New Testament letters, I see two themes. The first theme is simply uh, a leader in the church writing to a group of Christians somewhere and saying, smarten up. You know, stop it. Stop doing that because it's not good for you. It's not good for, uh, for others. It's not good for the world around you. Stop doing that. And Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians are kind of that example. And the other reason why they're writing letters is simply to encourage people. People are feeling it um, in the first century. They're persecuted. They're being uh, chased around. They're, they're not sure of their identity. And the letters are meant to encourage them. Stay the course. Hang in there. You can do this. And, and James is kind of a little bit of a combination of both. So today as we look at the letter of James, we need to ask this question. Which James? Who wrote the letter of James? In James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're like, great, so James wrote this letter. A lot of the letters have the author identifying themselves at the beginning. But sometimes you're left with this question, well, which one? Because in the early church, there were several Jameses. There was James, the brother of John. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. And you'll see them in a list of the 12 apostles. And then there's this guy named James the Just, and he was the brother of Jesus. And if you've forgotten about that, Jesus had family. He had a mom and a dad, but he also had brothers and sisters. And scholars will debate on who wrote James, and um, if you want some lovely bedtime reading to help you get to sleep, you can read about that on scholars writing about which person wrote the book of James. Some of you will enjoy reading about that, and you'll have a lot of fun discovering the different uh, debates back and forth. I happen to think that it likely was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter, but I also need us to stop and think about this for a minute. The guy who wrote this letter was the brother of Jesus. Could you imagine being a sibling to Jesus and what that would have been like? So we don't know what they looked like, but as you look at church art and historical art in the church, you get different authors giving different depictions of different people in the Bible, and there are lots of pictures of James the just, or James the brother of Jesus. And so here's an example of of one picture of James the just. And he kind of looks like he's looking up to his big brother. Hey, bro, I kind of could use your help right now. And that's a nice image of James the just. However, I think that different artists picked up on some of the challenges that it might have been like to be the brother of Jesus. So you have this artist here uh, giving this picture of James the why bother? Uh, Why bother? I mean, I can't live up to my brother, so why even try? Or there's an example here of James the Annoyed. You know, how annoying must it have been to be the brother of Jesus? You know, the, the guy who just everybody loves, who never seems to get it wrong. And I think the artist is picking up on, on this element here in James the Annoyed. But then, of course, my favorite one is James the Sarcastic. 
And uh, I can just see him, oh brother, you're so great. And you can see how it might have been like for him to be the brother of Jesus. And of course, lastly, James the why bother the second at the end of his life. Like, hey, I give up trying to live up to my big brothers. uh, Trying to live up to his pattern or live in his shoes. Now, that's a little bit of fun, poking fun at James. Some of you might be thinking, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. But I love what G.K. Chesterton wrote. He was a Catholic thinker and writer, and he said this, it's the test of a good religion whether you can joke about it. And so if we can't laugh at ourselves, I don't know. I think we've got problems. So that's my defense. If you don't like what I just did, um, G.K. Chesterton said it was okay. And... um, that's a look at James. And so I really do think it was probably James, the brother of Jesus. It makes the most sense. doesn't mean that I'm right. Uh, but I, I think it adds to the element of this letter. And so I genuinely want to ask the question, who is James? James the just. And yes, he's the brother of Jesus. But interestingly, if we look at this verse here, James 1.1, This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James is a brother to Jesus, and I'd like to walk you back through a little bit of the history of Jesus and his brother James. If you go to Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, we read that there's a large crowd following Jesus. And then everywhere he goes, especially in in Mark's gospel, there are crowds with Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, Jesus' family came to take charge of him because they thought he was out of his mind. James is a part of this family that early on, when Jesus was traveling around trying to explain to the world who he is and what he was trying to do, his family, including James, come along and they try to take charge of him because they think he's nuts. If you read in John's gospel, in John chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus is ready to go to Jerusalem, and his brothers are actually taunting him, saying, listen, if you're going to go, go. Like, if you're going to show the world who you are, this is James the sarcastic, I think, if you're going to show the world who you are, then go and show them. And then in verse 5 says, they didn't believe in him. And that would include James, his brother. So you've this uh, animosity that exists between Jesus and his brother James. And then something happens to James that changes everything. His mind and his heart get changed. And it has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus. James saw his brother killed. And then as you read Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, I think it's verse 7, Paul is saying Jesus appeared to Peter and to John and to the 12. Then he appeared to 500 of the followers of Jesus at one time. And then he appeared to James, his brother. And something happened to James when he met his brother alive again. And suddenly the penny dropped for him and everything began to come into place. And early on, as you read through the the book of Acts, you will see James become a leader in the early church, the earliest followers of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was killed. James becomes a prominent leader in the early church. And he actually dies for his faith. He's beheaded because of his faith. He's a pillar in this church. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing a letter that we already looked at, the letter to the Galatians, 
actually says, you know, when I was trying to, to convince the Christians that I was no longer trying to kill them, because that's what he had been doing, now I was one of them, one of the people Paul consults is James, the leader in the church, in uh, Galatians 1.19, and also in chapter 2. And so you see in James this, this brother of Jesus who has to wrestle with seeing Jesus for who he was. And I think the fact that his family struggled with knowing who Jesus was actually speaks to the humanity of Jesus. And as Christians, we often have a hard time staying focused on the humanity of Jesus. We get caught up in his divinity. Of course he was God. Jesus was God. We just throw it around like anything. But the people who were with him had a hard time acknowledging that because everything about him was so human. And that means he understands us and he relates to us. The God that we worship is a God who has become us. James had to wrestle with all the implications of that. And eventually it worked for him. And he, um, he gave his life to Jesus. And so he says of Jesus, I am your slave. I surrender myself to you. I give myself to you. So why did James write this letter? What were his goals for writing this letter? I think first and foremost, James is writing to a group of his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he's trying to encourage them. So in chapter 1, you'll read again, you're going through troubles. And he says you can consider it joy because these are going to help you. But he's trying to soften this for them. He's trying to help them manage this and work through this. This is what he writes in verses 16 to 18 in chapter 1. Don't be misled, brothers and sisters, and we'll get to this in a moment. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. Whatever is good and perfect comes to us. He never changes. God never changes. He never casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. And so here's James writing to the Christians, and he's saying, you are God's prized possession. And everything you can think of that is good and perfect is a gift from God. God wants what is best for you. He wants what's best for us. And James is writing, trying to help Christian people understand this. And at the beginning of that verse, you know, he says, because of this, don't get misled. And he's comparing these good and perfect gifts from God to something earlier that um, in the verses preceding this in chapter 1, that people are having this uh, awareness that there's bad things happening to them and they think God is the cause of it. And James is saying, no, 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 no. You know, God doesn't tempt people. God doesn't try people. It's some of the stuff that we get ourselves into is our own doing. And James talks about the things we go after that we desire. Sometimes the word used for that is the word lust. We go after these things thinking that these are what are best for us. And then they just lead us into sin. And sin, when it is left unchecked, leads into ultimately death. And James is saying that is not from God. But the things that are pleasing and that are good, these are the things that are from God. Because God wants what is best for you. And throughout my years of following Jesus, there are times when I'm wrestling and struggling. And I have to remind myself, God wants what's best for me. I may not understand everything that I'm going through right now, but God wants what is best for me. 
and his gifts are beautiful. So that's the first thing James, I think, is writing. As you read through this letter, it's five chapters. God wants what's best for you. And then secondly, he's saying this. A lived faith is shown through your actions. When we talk about our faith, we can't talk about faith without also talking about the way it affects how we live. And this is throughout uh, this letter here. So we've addressed this already in looking at Paul's letters, that Paul talks about people of faith. And sometimes when we think of faith, we think of it only as an intellectual experience. So we believe something. And James and Paul would both say faith is more than just a declaration about something that we think or we believe, that it is a manifesto. It is a, it is a way of living that dictates all of our decisions. And so if we look at chapter 2, verse 14, in what James writes, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, say I've got my manifesto, but you don't show it by your actions, can't that kind of faith save anyone? Can that kind of faith save anyone if you, if you say you have faith, but it actually doesn't get lived out? And I think James is dealing with, with a problem in this early group of Christians, and that was this. We've got the Torah. We've got the law. And it was almost like, and I think Christians do this today, we've got the Bible. The Bible says it. That's good enough for me. And yet James is challenging that kind of thinking by simply responding, listen, great, you've got the Bible, you've got the law, you've got the Torah, you believe that God is one, you believe all the right things. Most of the things you believe, even demons believe all that stuff that you believe. But if it doesn't get worked out in daily life, then what value is it? And I think James is saying that's an ugly kind of religion. When we focus merely on creeds and statements and proclamations and we make sure that everybody in the room knows the right answers. And James would say, yeah, that's an ugly kind of religion. But if we let our faith get lived out, if we become slaves to Jesus, we surrender ourselves to Jesus, like James identifies himself in verse 1, well, then that kind of faith starts to get attractive. That kind of faith is is the kind of faith that reflects the good and perfect gifts that God gives to us. When we let faith live out, um, get worked out in our daily actions, then, then that is letting the manifesto of Jesus, the law of Christ, actually, actually show the world what God looks like. And James would say that is a religion that looks good. So in verse 26, James says this in chapter 1. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows and their desires and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So here's James saying, listen, if we want to talk about religion, here's a positive spin on it. Religion that looks good is a religion that actually has a faith that is lived every day. We are living out the way of Christ. And if we're going to talk about religion and being religious, then let's at least understand that it has to look good. I think James is actually pushing against the religious tendencies of people in this letter. And that's why he's saying, like, if you want to talk about religion, then let's at least make sure we, we understand this together. And so the rest of this letter, chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, 
it looks like this mishmash of stuff. He's talking about this, he's talking about that, and there's actually a style to this that is in line with, with uh, Jewish wisdom literature that people would be familiar with in that day. For us, it's a little bit more difficult today. But he covers a number of different things, and I think what he's doing is he's saying these different things are how you make a religion look good. And so he'll talk about your tongue. In chapter 3, he says, you know, it takes a little spark to put a forest into fire. It takes a tiny rudder to steer a giant ship. It takes your little tiny tongue to destroy people or to build them up. And we all know the value of that. And so here's James saying, if you want to talk about faith, then let your faith control the way you think and control what you say. And when you do that, when you live under the manifesto of Christ, it is possible for your tongue to be controlled. And that makes religion look good. In chapter 2, he talks about compassion. And so there's this great warning that he gives. And he says, listen, if somebody comes in your midst and you say like, yeah, 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 sit down over there because you don't look so good. And then someone comes in and you know that they've got a lot of wealth and you just pander to them. That's favoritism. And James is saying that is not what the kingdom of God does. That's not how you act when you're part of the kingdom of God. Faith doesn't get lived out that way. Faith is about compassion particularly, especially for the poor, for the marginalized, and the outcast. And all throughout the scriptures, you will read again and again and again that God sides with the poor. God sides with the marginalized. God sides with the outcast. And if we let the world dictate that power is about those who have wealth, who have the good looks, and we give that to them and we cater to them, then we've lost sight of Jesus. And he's no longer at the center of our faith. And so you read about that in chapter 2. I love that he talks about judging in chapter 4. And you, you just pick up on, it just feels like it's a little bit of a patchwork quilt here. But in chapter 4, James says, why are you spending all this time judging people? You don't have to worry about that. We know that God is going to judge people. And I, and I want to make a note about this because we think, yes, 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 God will judge them. And when we say that, sometimes what we think is God will punish them the way that I think they should be punished. We did that with all of our siblings. James probably did that with Jesus at one point. But I think there's a check here where James is saying, we don't understand somebody's background. We don't understand a person's heart. We don't understand everything that they've been through. We'll let God, who knows people's hearts and their histories, be the one who judges. And just a reminder, the, the gospel, the good news, isn't that isn't that God's going to judge people. The good news is that Jesus is the judge. And when I see how Jesus treated sinful, outcast people, uh, I take great, great heart in that because he was very compassionate towards them. And I think he knows people in ways that we don't. There's this wonderful little tidbit here in James chapter 4 where he says... You know what? We run around and we say, today, tomorrow, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then in chapter 5, he, he really um, challenges people about getting caught up in wealth and getting caught up in materialism. And then when we get caught up in that, we end up participating either directly or indirectly in systems that, that oppress people. 
and abuse them and take advantage of them. And as you get into chapter 5, he's saying, listen, in their context, there's some rich farmers, and you're actually robbing your workers of their wages. But I think the principle here is this wonderful principle about, about guarding people, warning people about how wealth and materialism can take our eyes off of our lived faith and a lived faith that is centered in Jesus. And there's a great encouragement here. Um, it's in the negative, but when we take our eyes off Jesus, we can easily get caught up in this stuff. But he just brings us back. You know, a lived-out faith, a faith that is centered in Jesus with him as Lord, is a faith that doesn't allow that kind of thing to happen. And I think it's a good word for us. Faithfulness, trust in God, is another way of talking about having faith. And James throughout is saying, God wants what's best for you, and when you understand that, It changes the way you live on a daily basis. And now you are living in a way that your faithfulness is shown, your trust in God is shown. And when we let faith be lived out, it poetically reveals God to our world. A lived faith poetically reveals God to our world. It is something that is beautiful. It is something that is attractive when we live out our faith, when we move beyond just declarations and we say, no, there's a manifesto that dictates my daily expressions, that becomes something beautiful. So I want to leave you with this question and let you ponder it for the remainder of the day or the week. If someone was going to describe your faith How would they describe your faith by what they saw you doing, how they saw you living, what they read in your posts online? How would they describe your faith? Would it be a faith focused on Jesus, or might it be a faith that is getting tripped up in several of these things that James warns about? It's this question that just sits with me and and makes me ponder that. And then to add to that, James isn't just writing to individual people here. And again, our tendency is to read this as if everything that James is writing is for me personally. And yes, you can apply it to you personally, but actually, it's a question for us. If people were to describe the faith of our new life family by what we say, what we're doing, and where we're going, how would they describe our faith collectively together? If it's a lived faith, then it poetically reveals God to the world, the God who wants what's best for us and the God who will direct our daily lives for his glory and for our benefit. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Last week I said we were going to look at the letters of John this week. I was wrong. Uh, It was James. Next week we're going to look at the letters of John and uh, what he wrote. Not just the Gospel of John, but the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'll invite you to come back then. Go online, newlifecollingwood.com, check out what's happening. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, like our Facebook page, share stuff when you see it and you like it. It helps us if you share it. It gets the word out about what's going on. We'll see you next week. God bless. Bye for now.